From Freshair Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. Presented by Stuart Elford. With special guests, Alison Hernandez, Police and Crime Commissioner for Devon and Cornwall. When you campaign for an election, you're delivering leaflets. I've been doing that since 2008-9 when I joined the party. And I've always been quite smug that I never had a dog bite. Blimey. It was only a little one, but I did have to go to hospital and just get it checked out at the Minor Injuries Unit. And Rich Adams, University of Plymouth's Business Engagement Manager. I was talking to my 19-year-old son and I said, oh, you're particularly well-travelled for 19. I said, you're like Judith Chalmers. He went, ooh. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, and welcome to another edition of our In Conversation With podcast. This is Chamber Chat, where we talk to interesting personalities from around the region, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Alison Hernandez. God, I nearly got that wrong. Alison Hernandez. It was the Alison bit I got wrong. that's unbelievable. You wouldn't believe how many times my name gets wrong, so never the Alison. Oh, the favourite one I ever had was a cold caller calling me Mrs. Horrendous. Mrs. Horrendous. I, I, I said, you've never met me. <laughs> well, how could I possibly come? We'll, we'll find out whether you are Mrs. Horrendous. I'm sure you're not. I get called Stuart Effort a lot, which really drives me nuts. And the misspelling of Stuart, it's I'm effort. sure that's what it is. <laughs> well, look, thanks for taking up so much of your valuable time to speak to me in the business community. I want to ask you some of the things about your work and a bit more about you. But I want to start with, because this may not be obvious to many people, what does a police and crime commissioner do and why do we need them? I suppose, firstly, it's such a new role. It only got created in November 2012, which was the first election. So I always say, do you know what a local councillor does who've been around for decades? Most people really don't. We're on an uphill battle, really, in trying to get the messages across. But fundamentally, we oversee the governance of a local police force. Mm. And the police force I oversee is Devon and Cornwall. But I always say I'm the police and crime commissioner for Devon, Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly, because I don't want to forget that we have those islands. There's five inhabited islands there. Yeah. Yeah, And actually, they have the epitome of neighbourhood policing because the cops actually live in a police house on the island. So it's the ultimate in policing. So we must always remember the Isles of Scilly. Well, I've got it too. I don't know if you remember, but I've been in the police service myself for 17 years. And I helped out on the Isles of Scilly for a couple of weeks. In fact, for a week. And it was when the gig festival was on because they have a world gig racing championships there. And it was the only place I've ever policed where people were incredibly welcoming, but kind of didn't really know why you were there. It's like, (laughs) we don't really need you, but thanks. You know, it's lovely to see you and have a cup of tea. But and it's the only place I've ever placed where they people had no front door key and oh, would leave their key in the car because it's an incredible place. Wonderful. And actually, the biggest issues that the police at the time when I went and visited the first time after I'd got elected was looking at bike theft, which was basically people borrowing other people's they borrow, bikes yeah, they to get around. Yeah. There's nowhere to take them. I There's know. one road and it goes in a circle. Exactly. And people not wearing a seatbelt because cars were starting to really ratchet up on the island and they weren't wearing a seatbelt. But I will have to say they still have the same problems that we all have. They still will have domestic abuse in their families. They still will have violence that will be going on behind closed doors. And that's something that policing really does need to get to grips with because it's escalating in our community at the moment. Yes. It is, very sadly. I mean, let's talk about that now. Violence against women and girls has become incredibly topical, quite rightly. But what 
can we do? I see in Plymouth they've set up a commission to look at it, led by Rebecca Smith. I support it, obviously, 100%. Mm. I just don't know what can we do. What do you think is the answer? Well, it's a societal issue. This isn't just a Devon and Cornwall problem no, obviously. at all, is it? And the challenges we face, I think, is fundamentally men have always been more offending behaviour than women ever. So if we imagine we've got one prison, Eastwood Park, up in Gloucestershire, and we've got a myriad of prisons across the whole of the southwest for the men. So there's a challenge around... How I think men can feel like they're contributing to society. And I think there is a real challenge about how we help men feel involved and be able to contribute positively because violence isn't the answer, but it tends to be some form of ultimate thing that the male genes, it leads them to when there's frustration, when there's problems, and we've got to do something to help them. I agree. I heard a recent quote, was it Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who sadly passed away recently, he said, we've got to stop fishing people out the river and go upstream and find out why they're falling in. Because by the time you've got to the violence bit, it's almost too late, isn't it? I mean, we've got to deal with that. But I mean, why is it getting to that point? Why are men so disaffected, don't feel have a voice? They're so frustrated that the expression of it is, is violence, which is terrible. I'm not condoning it in any way at all but that is horrendous isn't it do you know if you think that domestic violence in particular was never taken seriously by policing you know 50 years ago it was like that happened behind closed doors you deal with it yourself that is not the case now so it's being much more exposed by the fact that the police will act proactively to help a victim of domestic abuse in the home and i think for us and on the streets the violence on the streets there has been such a poor focus on trying to help people who suffer from these kinds of behaviors Mm. We have only just in the last year really put in a programme to help perpetrators of domestic violence. It's always about the victim. So it almost becomes a bit victim blaming. You know, we need to help you escape. We need to help you protect yourself. No, actually, we need to deal with the people that are causing those violent acts. Yeah. Yeah. And there hasn't been a lot of support and help for those people. It's been a criminal justice process. So they might end up in prison. And we all know that that doesn't seem to rehabilitate people because we still have a reoffending rate that's not fantastic. We're not Mm. very good at it so there's something around how do we help people as early as possible now one of the schemes we've got here which is oh my gosh it's amazing we've got a retired police officer called david carney howworth and his wife elizabeth and she used to be a head teacher at Torpoint school they created operation encompass which is helping children the morning after when they've witnessed or been a victim of a domestic incident the night before. So it's about the school being alerted. It's about being there for that child. It's about saying, if that child wants to carry a teddy bear around all day in school that day, don't take it off them. It's understanding and supporting Mm -hmm. the children that are suffering. It's trying to get in early and helping them first. And I think we haven't really been focused on that. And I think there needs to be a lot more effort. We've won a world-class policing award competing across the globe for Operation Encompass. So we're very proud of it. And it is now in 43 police forces across the country. They've all got it in some form. But there are things that we can do that we can start as a whole community, as a society, to start Mm. making a change. And for me, Operation Encompass is just a first step in actually starting something very young with young people who are affected. Because we know if you've been brought up in a household with violence, you are more likely to be violent. I was just about to say we've got to break that cycle. I mean one of the most moving things I dealt with in the police service was a woman was a victim of domestic violence, very very bad domestic violence from her partner who was the father of a little boy and I turned up and the little boy had scared father off by grabbing a knife a fruit knife and said leave mummy alone and he asked me this little boy can you stop daddy hurting mummy and I remember writing on the police log that this man is going to kill this woman unless we do something and sadly he did he killed her and the police turned up and 
she'd been stabbed, I think, 17 times. Oh, I think. And it was just awful because you could just see we had home office alarms in the police were there within a minute or two you couldn't have knocked the reaction but something had failed in the system because he still managed to get to her and by the time the police got there yeah he'd done what he'd done and most of our homicides here in devon and cornwall are domestic related and i mean there are important improvements that have happened that wouldn't have been there actually when you were an officer oh no we're talking decades centuries ago when i was in the job that's what i mean the focus Mm. has shifted so much now that there's domestic violence prevention orders that the police can put Mm. in place quickly we've got to focus on the perpetrators we can't keep focusing like we have on protecting the victim it's not good enough and Mm. the most positive thing that's happened is the police can act and take a man to court and i will say a man because it's generally the men that are doing some of these really horrific acts of violence they can actually take them to court without the victim's support so the victim doesn't have to give a witness statement that is a good positive change because they are frightened because they know ultimately the police can't be there 24 7 to protect them so they often will not support any sort of criminal justice process on their partner mm. and that is a really positive step forward because it takes the emphasis away yeah it's not from her the doing it it's the yeah it's police i get that you did say that it is also men who are victims mm. i've got a friend who was a victim of abuse for many years and he was just embarrassed about it yeah. you know how do you tell people that your wife punches you it's awful anyway well look what other priorities have you got for the police at the moment one of my roles is to produce a police and crime plan which sounds quite boring sounds quite dull it's a statutory requirement that i've got in law to produce Mm. one year after an election obviously I've produced that quickly because I want to hurry up and get the priorities sorted but I've got four key priorities in this plan I've made it so focused so that it's a lot simpler I've got drugs Mm. I'm absolutely determined to get drugs out of our communities and I need Mm. our communities help with that Mm. I do need them to report it I do need them to say we won't tolerate it anymore and that's why I'm really pushing crime stoppers because it's anonymous and Mm. I really want their help so we've got drugs as a priority so there'll be a lot more enforcement around that and I would say there hasn't been hardly any on cannabis it's all been focused on like heroin and things like that we've got to focus on cannabis we've got to focus on cocaine so drugs is a priority another one which is quite interesting because it's a really big issue for a lot of our communities particularly our rural communities road safety People are frustrated that so many people drive poorly, drive dangerously, drive with distraction, whether they're on their phone, fiddling about in their car or whatever they're doing, and they don't see that there's any enforcement around it. Mm. So, so road safety is a priority. We're having too many people die on our roads, and we just can't continue with that. And we've got largely rural roads. About 80% of our roads in Devon and Cornwall are rural roads. And, you know, it's harder for the ambulance to get there, so you're more likely to die if you have a serious incident on a mm. rural road. So road safety is a focus obviously i've got serious violence Mm. and violence against women and girls is part of that but just generally the whole serious violence picture for us it's dramatically increased in devon and cornwall part of that is the recording changes of the way the government has asked us to record crimes but ultimately it's not good enough you know Mm. it's not good enough it is escalating and we've got to put stop on that so serious violence is in there as well I think for the police to have some really clear priorities is so important because they're too busy doing everything and it feels like there's no progress in some of these areas. So the priority setting is really, really important. The last one I've got is antisocial behaviour. There's a real challenge around how people act in a public space in particular and some people are absolutely fed up with it and it actually really does affect their quality of life. You know, the vandalism, graffiti, noise, drinking in parks, all sorts of antisocial social behaviour and blimey did we see it in Covid I tell you on Exmouth Beach where we had loads of people drinking and 
on a public beach because they wanted to be in the open space. It escalated to violence, you know. Mm. So we've got to get control of antisocial behaviour. And I'm not a party pooper, but this is about, you know, helping people understand there are consequences. So I've got mm. four priorities, drugs, serious violence, road safety and antisocial behaviour. Well, I'm pleased about the road safety, particularly because I'm a biker. I'm president of Plymouth Advanced Motorcyclists. In fact, I got in touch with your office and you've helped us across the southwest. Pam, Plymouth Advanced Motorcyclists have been commissioned to produce a road safety video for motorcyclists. But that's particularly mm. close to my heart because you're right, we've got fabulous motorcycling roads. But if you have an accident in the middle of nowhere, your help is quite a way away. And, you know, I don't mean to be funny, Stuart, but your age group <laughs> on a 22, bike. 23. <laughs> on a bike. 24. On a Sunday afternoon probably the most riskiest time ever to be and most likely to die in a serious collision. Born again bikers, yeah. Mm. Well, I was very averse to going back to biking. I am a born again biker, but I went out with a friend of mine who is an advanced rider and I just felt much safer and um, watching the way he positioned his bike, how he handled it. And you can't eliminate all risk, but having no. become an advanced rider myself, I think that does a lot. But I'm glad you talk about the road safety because on a motorcycle, not only are you vulnerable, but you also have an incredible view and you're higher up. And the number of people I see texting on phones, oh, not paying attention, yeah. you think, this is my life. For you, it'll be a dent in the side of yeah. your car. For me, it'll be my life. So yeah. you have to ride as if everyone's out to kill you. They're all yeah. hired assassins <laughs> trying to get you. I know we don't want you to be that scared on the road, but we do have this fantastic scheme which if you have a dash cam in your car you can now upload it yourself to the police website it's called op snap operation snap so if you witness poor driving behavior and you think they've committed a traffic offense and they've driven off you can upload that footage the police will review it and they'll just go ahead with the process you don't have to do anything else so it's a really good scheme and if you've got one on your bike and you're witnessing that oh i'd love to catch a few more because it's really dangerous i haven't but i should shouldn't i can i get a sponsored dash cam or helmet cam or something do you know what i did a scheme with southwest water and a couple of other businesses because they use our road network a lot and paid 50 percent towards their dash cams i had people inundating my office saying can we have one can we have one yeah they're not that expensive actually Although, to be fair, I still don't have one in my car, so I need to get that sorted. I think they make yourself a better driver as well, because if you're aware that what you're doing is being recorded, not that I suggest we all behave badly, but if you are aware that it is there, not even in black and white, but in full Technicolor, it helps. It does. That's the same as body-worn video for officers, by the way. I agree. We've got the best body-worn video. They would say that in the police team, wouldn't they? But they say we are the best at body-worn video and how we Mm. train people and how we use it. But that's about police behaviour as well. So when you know you're recording yourself in dealing with an interaction, it ups the standards of those officers as well. And and it also calms those people down because they know they're being filmed because they have to say you're being recorded. And it can sometimes obviously de-escalate an incident. Yeah, quite right. I hate it that CCTV, and we are, you know, as a country, rife with CCTV, probably one of the most in Europe, but it It works. works. (laughs) Yes, if it works. Mm. Still to come... Rich Adams, University of Plymouth's Business Engagement Manager. I just think there's so many great things happening in this city and I think now we're post-Covid, we need to start bigging ourselves up a bit. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. 
I also read that you're campaigning, and this is a cause very close to my heart because I have Charlie, the unofficial chamber dog, oh, asleep next to me, is for harsher penalties for pet theft. Yeah, and that's worked because we've worked with the government on this and they had their pet theft task force. We did a survey as the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners, so we did this national survey. I think it's something right off the top of my head. 170,000 people responded to the survey about penalties on dog theft and mm. whether they'd witnessed dog theft, had been a victim of it. Loads of people responded. It's definitely something, since COVID in particular, more people became pet owners. Yeah. And the government have been working really hard. And yeah, they've got the Pet Theft Task Force and our Gloucestershire Police and Crime Commissioner in our southwest region, because we work as a team, he's on that Pet Theft Task Force. So there will be something coming forward at soon. Yeah, well, it needs to be because they are members of your family. Yeah. And to say that it's just property and it's whatever a dog is worth anywhere from 100 quid to 5,000 pounds, yes. you know, that's not the point. It's, it's not. not the money. There is no money in the world would replace my boy. Absolutely not. Mm. And the way it's recorded, and this is why it's been so challenging to get the data from the police, because it's not a specific offence. And that's the one that's the challenge, because when it's not a specific offence, it will be classified as theft of property. Yes. And unless they've written and put on the system that it's a pet or something, it's really hard to find the data. So part of the campaigning is about having an offence category. Yes. It's very kind of you to do that for dogs particularly, seeing as you got bitten, didn't you? Oh, I did. But it's the first dog bite I've ever had, which apparently is very rare to have not had one before since I've been involved in campaigning for elections when I joined the party. Do you think dogs are trained to attack politicians? No, we just put our hands through a lot of letterboxes. Oh, I see. (laughs) When you campaign for an election, you're delivering leaflets, right? Right. And so I've been doing that since 2008, eight nine when I joined the party. And I've always been quite, you know, smug that I never Mm. had a dog bite. Blimey. It was only a little one but I did have to go to hospital and just get it checked out at the minor injuries Did you unit. get a bandage badge of honour? Do you know she actually said mm, don't really do anything if you've had a tetanus jab when you were younger pff, I'll give you a big plaster That's it you've got to have a badge of honour something that shows what you've done yeah, I was like yeah. embarrassed to have turned up I said I'm really sorry I thought I might need something so yeah. um yeah. No. My dog, the most you're going to get from him is licked to death, I think. He's looking at me oh, right now. Oh, he's like, gorgeous. Well, I'm biased, but I think so. So um, <laughs> you're a local lady, aren't you, from Torbay? Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah, born so and bred. What was your upbringing like? Well, I remember a happy childhood, and I was from a place called Heal in Torquay, which... <laughs> I I laugh because there's a sign that says, welcome to Heal Village. And the local community used to cross it off and put hell. Hell Village, Hell Village. Well, it's the same Plymouth used to be Spirit of Discovery and the Janners would cross off the very, so it was Spirit of Disco. Oh, uh, yeah. (laughs) But I love that. I love that. Sorry, go on. Do you know I missed Spirit of Discovery because I used to work with Plymouth and City Council and I liked Strapline Spirit of Discovery because that really is what I think epitomises Plymouth. But yeah, so I'm from Heal Village and it's classified as like one of the most deprived areas in the southwest and my grandparents were there they both died young you know in their early 60s so all that sort of you know when you're from a deprived area you don't have a long life expectancy Mm. my dad died at 59 Mm. Um, so I've had a joyful upbringing but I was one of these people that was lucky enough to pass for the girls grammar school and I say lucky I hated every minute of it couldn't wait to get out of school every day oh gosh I did minimal work just to get by but I say lucky now because it was in the days when primary schools were proud to send their kids to a grammar school and they'd say we got three through this year Mm. and now you have to pay for private tuition to get a child to go to grammar school it's Mm. absolutely not right and it's become in my view a free school for those who would normally pay for private school fees it's so different now what grammar school shapes and looks like than what it was when I was a kid but it got me to meet lots of different people so my dad was a bus driver my mum was a cleaner And I got to meet the daughters of accountants and pharmacists and solicitors and, you know, interesting people that I'd never 
been involved with before. So for me, the lucky bit was learning that people who have money are exactly the same as people who don't have money. That's the biggest leveller that it taught me, is that they're all humans with their own problems, with their own issues, and it's exactly the same. All it is is that they live in a bigger house and they don't worry about money quite so much. Mm. But it really did give me a leveller, and it's why I can talk to anybody, really, whoever they may be, Mm. and I put no airs and graces on. Mm. But, yeah, that's the bit for me in my upbringing. Hated school, absolutely loathed it. Didn't want to go and do my A-levels because I hated school so much, but I realised I'd have to get a job, so... (laughs) I thought, oh, was that worse? It, the idea was worse. I mean, I'd always had a job at school. I used to work the markets with my dad selling donuts every summer and every holiday break. At the last minute, went through clearing and got through to do A-levels at South Devon College. I was like, I'm never going to do university. No, And I ended up applying for university through clearing at the last minute and getting in because they still had the grant system then. Mm. So my parents didn't earn enough money, which meant that the government paid for me to go to uni. Right. I've had a really privileged upbringing, I feel. Because of the education because particularly. Because of the education in particular and I have not been brought up in a household of violence because I tell you the most privileged position you can be in as an adult is not being brought up in a house of violence we talked about it earlier but so many people do and that is to me the ultimate that affects you as a child yeah if you have a good happy safe childhood I suppose that's the best you can hope for and what took you to politics did you always want to go into politics because your degree was marketing was it oh my degree was sociology I got oh. an ology so you must be intelligent yeah well do you know the only bit that makes me feel like I may have been in some way intelligent because it was a bachelor of science with honours that oh. I got but I got a Desmond as they call it bless Desmond Tutu yes. yeah so I did sociology I did marketing after and came to Plymouth Business School did that postgraduate I only did an advanced certificate in marketing but education I need to do some more You know, there's been too much of a gap at the moment. I'd like to do some more. That's something I'm interested in. And what took you to politics? Did you always want to go into this? No, still don't understand politics. I'm not a big political beast. Um, I'm not interested in all the history of how things have been. I got into it, funny enough, when I was working for Plymouth City Council. I had a boss tell me, and I used to coordinate that Plymouth 2020 partnership, which was setting the vision for the city and bringing all the partners together. And she told me one day when I was trying to do something, look, we'll never get this past the politicians. You need to understand this, Alison. And every time I wanted to do something that I thought was a useful thing to do, I was always quashed and told it couldn't be done because the politicians wouldn't support it. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to get involved in politics and become a councillor so that I can remove the excuse. Mm. Not in Plymouth, I did it in Torbay in my home area, but that's why I sort of got spurred into getting involved in it. And I was also doing loads of community work in my community and regenerated a park and we won some more awards and I love doing stuff with community. I loved being a councillor. And so that's how I got into politics. And because I'm a team player, you need to join a party. I couldn't do it on my own. I've not a clue. So I joined a party to be part of a team to win elections. And you joined the Conservatives. Mm. As I said to you before the interview, you know, the Chamber's apolitical. I'm not here to catch you out politically. We work with anybody and everybody because we have to. And I think that should be the way, shouldn't it, for politics generally? I I mean, it's easy to be wise after the event. But should the whole COVID response, I wonder if that should have been a cross party COVID response. Do you know what I mean? Because it's such a massive thing. Mm. And I think we could do with a bit more collaborative politics because working together, surely we can get a lot more done than this sort of confrontational style. As though I say I understand little about politics, the one thing I actually fundamentally do believe in is the two-party system. I don't believe in multiple political parties. The role of the opposition is an important role to have to challenge the government and make sure they're doing things appropriately. Mm. It's really important to have an opposition view. While it might sound like a bit of pantomime that all they do is say the opposite of what the government says the ultimate aim is to make sure the government stays 
straight and stays on the mm. right track. That is the role. And I believe in the two party system that they used to have years ago. Mm. But now we've got multiple parties and independents. And that isn't collaboration then. Collaboration mm. is an opposition, a strong opposition holding the government to account. Well, that's another argument, isn't it? Whether we've had an effective opposition for many years. But let's not go down that well, route. Let's not go down that <laughs> so route. So coming away from politics, I mean, we don't know much about Alison. Tell us about you. I'm really quite boring, I to be honest. I had my 48th birthday in December and... What date? 9th. I'm 28th. Just checking. Oh, bless you. You're nearer Christmas. Oh, it's it's so I hate December birthdays. Time. Do you know, I saw on, I think it was Graham Norton the other day, I think it was Lawrence Fishburne, has the same birthday as me, 28th of December, and he was saying, oh, that's a terrible time of year to have a birthday. And he was saying he used to get like a car racing set with one of the cars missing. Oh, because he knew no. Then it would arrive for his birthday. And I had similar myself. Anyway, sorry. That is so you had so your 48th... Sad birthday on the ninth because i'm approaching 50 so i am starting to think about what's my next step Mm. do i want to be police and crime commissioner again do i want to stand again do i want to do something different Mm. i'm having a whole contemplation of course i've gone around the houses and gone of course i do i love this job best Mm. job i've ever had but i say that about every job i've ever had it's the Mm. best job i've ever had at the time i'm doing it so yeah i've been a bit of contemplating my life i've got a 14 year old daughter teenager enough said I think mm. on that one I'm divorced so I have shared care with her dad and it's been challenging lately so <laughs> I'm not very patient mm. I think it works well for my job yeah because you want work. things done yeah but it doesn't work well in the home and yeah I'm having to sort of learn some new skills and ways in which to speak to teenage daughters and she's a dream if I'm honest she's not a problem it's just the little things matter don't yeah. they in yeah. teenage world so yeah and I live in Torquay and I did move to Ivy Bridge for a while when I worked for Plymouth City Council I did live in Bristol for a while when I worked for a regional government office and I've obviously lived in London when I was at university but I'm a real Southwest girl. Mm. I love the Southwest. Yeah, what do you love about it? Oh, we have the most beautiful place to live in and most fabulous people in our community that do so much you know we have got such an active community if you want volunteers it's pretty easy to recruit them they are incredible what our Mm. community does we recognize because especially with us being on a peninsula for the whole of devon and cornwall we recognize if we ain't going to do it ourselves no one else is going to help us and i think that love that spirit love that spirit we sort of say we want more money from government we lobby hard for it and then we have to stick two fingers up sometimes and go right we just got to get on with it ourselves yeah and i love that about our community they're amazing i get inspired every day yeah i do by the people i I work with and meet i I feel privileged with my job because i get to meet all these interesting people from fascinating businesses doing incredible things and like you i get frustrated that we have to sort of go with a begging bowl in hand to government sometimes and to get the great southwest recognized and recognized as a fabulous blue green economy and so forth but if anything good has come out of the pandemic people have realized that it's a fabulous place to live and work you don't just have to have a second home down here you can make it your first home work from here but 10 minutes later be on the beach or on the moors do you know we saw that with all the second homeowners who were trying to come under the cover of darkness to come down (laughs) and be here for the pandemic rather than in a horrible city with no outside space you know we had a lot of complaints by the way from the community about those second homeowners really upset about it so there was a few champagne parties in Thilston and there was a few things going on that the police had to deal Mm. with but yeah it's incredibly beautiful I mean do you know what somebody said to me if you were to have a fire in a house what would you 
you save? I said, nothing other than my daughter. I haven't got a Mm. pet. My poor cat died last year. Because I have no sentimental attachment attached to any physical things. What I would absolutely couldn't live without is a sea view, is Mm. looking at the sea and feeling that openness that you feel by looking at the sea. And I can't live in land. I go and see my friends in Sheffield Way sometimes Mm. for New Year. I didn't go this year. And I sometimes get claustrophobic if I'm there for too many days. I literally know how far I am from the sea. And it affects my psychology. You know, I literally can't stand it. So... At least once a week, I have to go and look at the sea. Make sure it's still there. Make sure nobody's stolen it. Oh, I drive the long way home just to drive past the sea because I live near the seafront in Torquay. So I always make sure I drive that way so that I remind myself that I'm so lucky and privileged to live in such an amazing place. Do you sail, kayak, stand-up paddleboard? Oh, no, 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 no. You're not one of these mad cold water swimmers, eh? No, not at all. Although I've got a new partner and he's getting me out walking a lot more and he he likes fishing and he kayaks and all these things. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to start doing something different. But I've never been on the sea. Right. I admire it I from love, the shore. I love being on the sea. I've got a sit-on kayak, and it's because I can't afford a boat, basically. <laughs> As my friend says, if you're floating, you're boating. <laughs> and I like that. I and so that. that's my boat. You yeah. can hold a beer can. That's the important thing. Oh, so you, know, you can sit and have a beer and float about. And I need to be on the water every now and again. Otherwise, I go a bit yeah. twitchy in a bit. No. I know. I'll be interested to see if my partner can get me out on the, in the summer. <laughs> Well, do you think you've got bad sea legs or something? I, I can go on a cruise ship, absolutely fine, but put me on the ferry across to France and I'll have to lie on the floor. It's like really? that bad, yeah. But I'd be quite interested to see. You're sort of feeling it yourself, aren't you, if you're in a small yeah. boat? So I'd be quite interested to see if I can cope. The bit for me, if I'm really frank as a woman, it's wearing a wetsuit or a swimsuit in public. You know, we have these body image issues. Always had them all my life. <laughs> so have I. You just you don't know, want to be I, seen. Whenever I sit on my kayak, Greenpeace turn up to tow me back out to sea. <laughs> I think they think I've got some sort of beached whale has arrived. I mean, wetsuits are not flattering for anyone unless they're sort of a size eight or something, yeah. you know. And outside of that, I'm afraid. No. Yeah, and I'm so pale as well, right? So basically, I reflect the sun. I literally do. You know how mm. it like reflects the sun? And fake tan and everything's all good, but it smells horrible. I don't know. I've just got all these issues. <laughs> hey, well, tell me about it. So I'm a pale pasty Englishman with just a hint of strawberry blonde in my hair. And that means I crisp up like a... You know, people oh. laugh at me because I have to put so much sun cream on, but I'd rather do that than fry. <laughs> so I suppose last question before we wrap up. What do you want your legacy to be? Because you say you're thinking about what's next. Mm. I get that. You know, you always need that challenge. But when you do, whether it's, you know, in a couple of years' time or in 20 years' time, stand down as police and crime commissioner, what would you want your legacy to be? What would make you think, yeah, I did that right. I've succeeded. Well, funny enough, I feel like I've already done it. I have lived in my world. I've got this intense feeling of need to do public duty. And it's partly because I went to the grammar school and I felt privileged and I got Mm. paid to go to university by the government. And so I've always felt the need to give back because not everybody got that opportunity. And every job I've ever done, I've been able to give back. So I suppose for me, the biggest thing I'd like to see, and it's particularly at the moment, the thing that's in my mind is we have to have less murder, less deaths on our roads. If we can really bring that down... I will feel like I've changed the world. Mm. So in terms of that, that's my big one. But I need to do it with our community. And so I need to use all my strength and all my skills to make our community understand the role they need to play. Don't know fully what that is yet. 
I'm so proud uh, so far of what we've managed to do, but there is so much more to be done. And I think I just got to keep that impatience going mm. in terms of it. But yeah, I haven't got a big thing. I don't want to build a building. I mean, I've built a police station at Exeter, 29 million pounds. I've done lots of, you know, done things, but that's all irrelevant, really. It's about whether we're going to change the shape of our communities by the time I die. And hopefully I won't die as young as my dad and my grandparents because mm. I've only got about 10 years left, if that's the case. I'm sure that won't be the case. Things have moved on medically and they were healthier than we were and our parents generation and the ones before them so hopefully you'll be with us for many many <laughs> years yet well look we better wrap it up there Joe, i could talk to you for ages thanks so much for giving up your valuable time i'm sure everyone would be really interested to hear about you and your priorities and where you're going and do keep in touch the business community supports everything that the police and the police and crime commission is trying to do so we're here to help and thank you for joining us thanks Stuart. lovely to meet your dog this morning in particular yeah, not, not just me. you not no, just not you. me just just Charlie, bless him. All right. Thanks, Alison. From Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation with the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. So I'm now joined by Rich Adams, who's the Business Engagement Manager from the University of Plymouth. And Rich, is it you that wrote Watership Down? <laughs> That's a reference from way back in the day, Stuart. I was talking to someone the other day about how outdated my references are because I was talking to my 19-year-old son and I said, oh, you're particularly well-travelled for 19. I said, you like Judith Chalmers. And he went, who? Who? Yeah, (laughs) showing your age there. Alan Wicker. No, I don't know who that is. (laughs) You do. Yeah, sadly I do. Yes. Anyway, so Rich, first of all, I have to say, I can't be too horrible to Rich because he's one of my directors, so I've got to be very careful. But tell me, what does a business engagement manager at a university do? So what I do, I've got actually an amazing job at the university, I really love it. I'm very fortunate because I work right across the university and many people sort of work within their own faculty and school so I get to meddle and interfere into all sorts of things across the university and my job is to help businesses particularly find their route through to the university to find brilliant minds to help them advance their business brilliant academic minds and student minds but also give them access to some of the state of the art kit that rests within the University of Plymouth on roof tops, in laboratories, your wave tanks, microscopy units, all sorts of things like that. So a really interesting job, very diverse. So basically you've got a lot of really nice expensive toys to play with, haven't you? Well, the university has some really good investment, uh, not only in bits of kit, but also its capital budget is pretty significant. If you drive past the university at the moment, you're going to see a lot of scaffolding going on. I keep describing the university campus as a bit like if we the same pet at the moment, it's got a lot of building going on because it's making big investments. And universities have to because things get out the date really quickly nowadays so you know to remain relevant you've got to keep pouring that money in so you're being very appropriate calling it investment and assets not toys but they are some fantastic toys i've been lucky enough to go there and look at the wave tank and the ship simulator yeah the ship simulator is pretty good yeah if anyone's listening and they'd like a tour i'm yeah, more than happy and open to show people these things because i think a lot of plymouth doesn't realize what's actually happening on that campus and the ship simulator is one of those things and that's about to have a big investment as well and you mentioned the wave tank and the, the state-of-the-art equipment around the microscope centre is pretty impressive and we've got a cyber ship lab there so I don't know if people are aware but yeah, the world of piracy is moving on and you don't have people in skiffs with Kalashnikovs you have people with laptops steering huge oil tankers away from their predestination to where they want them and that's a big risk, it's a big risk to every nation's security. So the University of Plymouth has a big facility, a big room and it role plays a whole series of scenarios out and tries to create the coding that would prevent it You know, it's acting as sort of a, a pioneer in terms of 
national security in that regard. That's really interesting because I'd actually heard this. Someone was telling me that the ships being built today, the crew have no access to the engine room. That's all run from shore and that the restricting factor on any ship are the people. And it's actually very hard to steal a ship when there's no people on board because you don't need ladders, you don't need access. So if you have a sealed unit that's going in one direction, as you say, a skiff and a Kalashnikov's not going to do any good at all. But I suppose that's taking it to the next level. If, as I was told, ships are going to end up being captained by one person sat in a room at the University of Plymouth with a dozen screens actually captaining six ships, then that is the next level. They're going to steal it by stealth, by digital capture. So that's the stuff you're working on, is it? That's the stuff we're working on. I mean, it's a global partnership with you know, all sorts of players because it's an international risk. My goodness, we've got onto ship cybersecurity really quickly. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. So, yeah, I mean, if you think about the amount of software involved in these huge container tankers, and then it comes into one of our big ports on the south coast, that's all automated. That's all sort of robotics and software as well. It's taken off the ship. So I think the opportunity to hack into those systems and cause huge disruption is massive. And you think something like the UK's diesel, you know, a huge portion of that is imported you know that runs all sorts of facilities like our water treatment plans our sewage networks and all those kind of things so yeah it's potential for causing huge harm to not only the economy of this country but also the social fabric around it as well it's absolutely massive funny enough i had a presentation yesterday at plymouth growth board from babcock who were talking about the automation of defense systems and i'll remember this because brilliantly worded they said automation is for anything that's dull dirty or dangerous and i thought that's a really clever way to remember it but they were saying the biggest issue of course then is if you automate everything and you digitize everything it's how you secure that asset how you make sure it's not used inappropriately so you're right at the cutting edge of all this yeah absolutely I mean, automation's already been happening, isn't it? I mean, I, you only have to look around sort of people's houses now. and In the gardens, you see the automation of what was the old boy who had come in and mowed the lawn is now automated. There's robots there. Mm. You go into your supermarket and the automation is there. You've got the checkout you do yourself. You yeah. haven't got a labour-intensive solution yeah. to that, whereby you've got someone on a till passing everything through. There's big questions around, you know, how do we provide jobs for people in the future with that? But you know, also in the agricultural sector is really quite interesting because it went through a massive agricultural revolution solution bringing in machine intensive solutions yeah. but then still relied on a lot of labor intensive mm. solutions so agriculture now with the drying up of labor is having to rethink itself again so agri-tech and the use of robotics and artificial intelligence is something that the university has certainly been pioneering and we've got some great spin outs from that as well i just have this image rich of your house being like a sort of bill gates style everything automated digital sliding doors from star trek is that what it's like no it's not it's actually quite the opposite <laughs> <laughs> you got that at work, so yeah. at home you have... Well, like I said, I've got one of the best jobs in the world because I get to do all sorts of things. So one day I'll be talking about artificial intelligence and the next day I'm being introduced to the Brain Research and Imaging Centre up at the Science Park. Which is amazing. It is amazing. And then you're talking about offshore renewables and then you might be working with a business to put a bid in to get some research funding for Alzheimer's. So it's hugely diverse, yet incredibly enjoyable. You know, my place at home is not like that at all. Yeah, my passion in life is not necessarily technology it's just about new ideas you know as a kid when you had a bike for christmas and sort of next day you know, your parents would go out and that bike would be in pieces because that kid was more interested in knowing how it works yes less than riding it well i wasn't that kid oh right i was the kid who had the bike and then would go to all my friends separately and i say yeah why have you got 
bigger wheels on that oh because it makes it go faster why have you got a bigger saddle on that oh it's because i can give my friend a aki why have you got pegs on the back so what i do is i just cream all the best ideas for all my friends you and then compile yeah and then take all of that innovation that other people had already thought of and apply it in a slightly different way and yeah that's more what i'm about is just trying to make connections around things well that is the point of innovation a lot of people think innovation means having to come up with something that is so totally new that nobody's ever thought of anything like it before and there is the odd example of that in history but a lot of it is about applying things in a different way like the famous henry ford production line where he realized the people used to move down the line and then he realized well actually i can get the car to move down the line and the people stand there doing the same job and that was the start of production line manufacturing yeah that new widget with wings is invention what i'm talking about is innovation you're going back to the bike analogy i wasn't interested in inventing a new wheel i was interested in who'd already done the thinking and research about which wheel would make the bike go quicker and then taking that and applying it and that's what really interests me you just take it and put it into a different set of circumstances just reminds me of the quote from Stephen Fry in one of his books one of the characters says he had to come up with a new idea by morning so he went to the library because it must be full of them exactly (laughs) exactly right yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean it's a great phrase there's no such thing as a new idea but I don't necessarily sign up to that because I think as a country we are particularly inventive and I think as a nation we are incredibly innovative I just think that we tend to only do the invention and innovation at our absolute maximum potential in times of crisis well we've seen it recently how well we can respond to creating a vaccine in a state of crisis yeah. and you've seen it throughout the ages here particularly in, in war times and how the nation can rally yeah. so we've gone completely off subject there. no you haven't it's fantastic actually i mean it's almost like you've read my notes it led into my next thought was about the pandemic was described as the digital transformation officer that you didn't know you wanted or needed but it has made us all accelerate our use of online comms and all sorts of things which the chamber itself embraced so how did the university adapt and improvise over that pandemic period because i mean your job your main function as well as the research that goes on but is to teach students which must be very hard to do when they're not allowed in the building well it comes back to what i was saying really that i think in times of absolute need it brings out the best in us as the most creative that we always are and i think the university is no different to any other sector and any other business in that regard so yeah we moved manual processes to automated processes we took and embraced technology that allowed us to have continuity in terms of the teaching i mean some of the real challenges for me in my particular job was as i said linking businesses up to the state-of-the-art equipment the university has is providing safe access to that so that was a real challenge working with hundreds of businesses a year during those two years of you know, intermittent lockdowns their appetite to undertake r&d spiked it just gave the business community particularly a chance to stand back and think my goodness, where's my business going to be in three years' time? And what if i got to start doing that? It just gave them space to breathe. Yeah, they weren't doing the day-to-day firefighting and management. And think, and again, be creative. And so we saw a huge influx of inquiries around PhDs and collaboration opportunities and all sorts of things. So it was quite an exciting time. Absolutely. And I was only yesterday saying to someone, I need to take time out my diary to do the creative stuff, to do the strategy stuff, to do the innovation. Because we can all be busy, but you can be a busy fool, can't you? Where you just work at 100 miles an hour, but that doesn't necessarily take you to the next level to think about the bigger picture stuff. I think Plymouth's a really dynamic city in that it's got an awful lot going on. And you're right, you can fill your diary almost 24-7 of events to go to, workshops to go to, speakers that are fantastic. And it's about streamlining what it is that you want to achieve within your organisation, when you want to achieve it, who's going to yield you the best returns in terms of their knowledge that they can exchange to help you get to where you want to get to. So what's the most innovative thing you've been involved with? I'll tell you what I'm most 
proud of at the moment. One of my areas I'm responsible for is supporting students and graduates who want to start their own business. And I think the universities are renowned for creating employees of the future. And we do quite a lot around that, making sure that our graduates are fit for purpose in the labour market, Mm. especially in an area like Plymouth and the Southwest, where we've got a lot of SMEs. You know, in an SME, you're predominantly S's in the Southwest as well. You can't afford to go in and just play your role. You have to be able to roll your sleeves up and deal with suppliers. You have to also have a look at the finances. Mm. You've got to input on the marketing. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, and she works for a county company in the city, and the receptionist was off, and she's one of the accountants, so she had to then sort of sit by the reception, do the buzzers and everything. You have to do everything. You do. And so I'm very fortunate working with those that are going to be great employees, but also I'm responsible for those that want to be employers. That brings me on to my next question. You see, you have read my notes. <laughs> if you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. So I think the university's a big beast. There's no doubt. It's huge. And I hear about some of the big stuff you're doing and the big companies that are involved and some of the big tech. How can small companies get involved with you and what's the benefit to them? Well, the university works with about 4,000 businesses a year. It engages 4,000 approximately businesses a year, you know, give or take. And it does that in a whole variety of ways. I mean, I work intensively with about 800 or so. And a lot of those are smaller and medium-sized businesses because it's the smaller and medium-sized businesses that don't necessarily have the specialised bit of kit. You know, if you're talking about three million pounds for an electron microscope. Pocket change. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. For SMEs, it's not. No, exactly. That's the point. For some big organisations, they can probably afford to buy that and use it repetitively in their R&D process. If you're a small organisation looking to get one particular product to market, it might be a new material that's used or it might be food or drink products that you want to look at under great detail to make sure that the product is smooth enough to the palate or the supply chain of produce you're putting into it is it the right quality the vast majority are smes that we work with sure good and they benefit not just from that but also from students engaging with them absolutely if you bring the most creative brains that you've got from your student body into a business to help them address a barrier to growth you're going to come up with all sorts of solutions that you never thought were possible you as a university help startups and startups are particularly tough at the moment so what's lacking in the startup support space and what does the university do about that well our startup support is predominantly around our students so we're looking at creating 150 student startups a year. That's a lot. That is an awful lot, year on year. And it's not just about helping them come up with the idea. It's not just about helping them establish that business maintaining that business because as we know the big risk with startups is that after 12 months 24 36 they decline exponentially and stop trading it's about the quality of those businesses and we've got a service called the cube which is helping all of our student entrepreneurs and we've got something at the moment which is helping them just create that first step so the first thing we did is that we noticed that we have an awful lot of people come along the idea, the thought, that ambition that you described. Mm. But it's that first step, that very first step of doing something. I think when you've done that, you then are much easier to take the second and third step. So what we said is, we'll give you £100. Now, £100, it might get you a sample that you want to show people. It might allow you to do a bit of Facebook marketing. It might allow you to just get the skin of a website up and running. All sorts of, just that £100 might just do it. So we're doing 100 hundreds this year, where we've just given 100 students £100, a load of wraparound support, to ask your question need, yeah. and that isn't just on university yeah we've got about 80 specialists from across this city who are largely giving up their time in their expertise and their insight 
to help these students develop their business. So we've got that next cohort of entrepreneurs going into the city to help the economic base to do that job creation. Yes. So I need to talk to you, but I can't do it on the podcast because (laughs) I have someone who's approached me about this idea to bring that together and help. And of course, as a director of the chamber, you'll know if you're a member of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, you are three times more likely to survive than those around you. So I need to talk to you about how we get these young entrepreneurs in the chamber. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're a startup, you always lack two things. I learned this. I'm sure you did when you did your business. I mean, you lack two things. One is cash. Always. And the other is credibility. I'm still lacking both. (laughs) (laughs) So if we can help with that initial cash piece around access to finance, and not just to access finance, it's making sure they're investment ready as well, making sure they're fit for purpose, because going asking for cash when you don't really know know, what you need it for, how you're going to use it to grow the business is not a good place. So access to finance and getting them investment ready is really good. And then it's the introduction piece. And I used to hate this when I was younger, and I always found it a bit of an 80s cliche. Networking is really, really important, and it's not just the frequency of it. It's the quality of the networking you do as well. Yeah. We talked about just being busy fools earlier. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, what we can do, what you can do, Stuart, at the Chamber, what we can do as a university, what we can do because we've worked in this city a long time, is that we can make those introductions. And we can make those introductions to the right people of what meaningful, sim- meaningful that have walked a similar path to them, tried all sorts of solutions to very familiar problems, you know, raising finance, even you know, what's the best deal on the market at the moment for a credit card, all sorts of things, and just creating those links, forging that connectivity is what you and I should be doing now and are doing across the city, and that's invaluable because you can't Google that. No, you can't. And you know the access to finance thing. We had an access to finance event broadcast from this studio, live from the studio, and the sad thing with that is. It's quite a dry subject when people are excited about their topic, their widget, their new idea that they want to get out. And it's really hard to explain to people that even if they're not after the money now, you will do in 18 months to two years. So you've got to start thinking about it now so that you are ready. And so that's an important message to get out. Well, you mentioned the Chamber. Why did you get involved with us? I'm glad you did, by the way, but why? I've always been involved in business support in one form or another for about 25 years or more, and I thought it was a great way to put something back into the city. I thought it was a great way for me to learn as well. You know, I haven't stopped learning. I don't have all the answers to everything. So being around some great minds, it's a brilliant board. There's some fantastic representatives Certainly. on that board. Yeah, I think most businesses in this city would just die for that board. It's absolutely brilliant. So yeah, there's a ability to learn from others as well, because it's very diverse and people come from different backgrounds. But it's an opportunity to put things back into the city as well, understand the pains of the city, not just from my perspective, but from others as well. Yeah. Like I said earlier, I like solutioneering. Yeah. That's what I do. I'm not kind of a service architect person. I like coming up with solutions. And so if people are talking about things from different perspectives, it helps sort of trigger my creative mind. And, and yeah, hopefully I can add a bit of value back to the city as well. Well, I'm not just saying this, but you genuinely do. And I love that you're on our board. And you're right. Again, I'm not just saying it because they're my board, but they are a fantastic board. And I've laughed about how can we leverage that more, actually. It's the board you can't afford. You know, if we weren't a not-for-profit chamber business support organisation, I couldn't afford you not. You know, you're fantastic. You bring such value. And I always find the board meetings really invigorating because, as you say, there's all these fantastic ideas from a diverse range of people. I think it's superb, like I said. I I just think there's so many great things happening in this city. And I think now we're post-COVID, we need to start bigging ourselves up a bit. I think sometimes as a city, we lack a little bit of self-worth and self-confidence and we are much better. I'm fortunate that I work with a lot of places across the country. And unfortunately, I've travelled quite a lot as well. And I see lots of parts of the world. And I can tell 
tell you right now, Plymouth has got so much going for it. It's got brilliant people, brilliant minds, brilliant businesses, really strong university right in the middle there. And again, I'm happy to have that conversation with anyone and have a chat and showcase of what we can do. Well, you would say that because you're the University of Plymouth. But of course, we've got Devon and the blue-green economy across wider Devon is just fantastic. There's so much going on about marine autonomy, about smart sound. It's just brilliant. It is brilliant. I I have worked in other parts of this country and I wouldn't want to work anywhere else because I just think the opportunities here and the ambition here is second to none. And as the world evolves into this demand for net zero, the technologies that are emerging around offshore renewables, geothermals, the need for the lithium to put into car batteries, that's all happening across our patch. Yeah. And I just think now is the time. I just think we've just got to recognise that and we've got to embrace that and we've got to unify a little bit as well you know, as a region around that. Funnily enough, I've just come from a meeting where we're talking about that very thing about instilling civic pride, civic identity and understanding from everyone about the amazing things that are going on. I say in my job, I wish I could take the whole of Devon with me on my back everywhere I go because I'm lucky enough that I get sort of exposed to these things and see all this incredible stuff I wish people could see it and go wow look at what's going on yeah I'm the same and I wish I had a better brain for retaining it but yes, I, yeah, I, me I too. tend to go on to the next thing and when people ask me like what's the most innovative thing you've ever seen like, I can't recall but yeah, this afternoon I'll be going on to something really innovative and, yeah. and then I'll be thinking I want to tell you about this so as I said I think the region is in a really really strong position I just think it's got to realise it's in a really strong position and unify as a single voice like I was saying and I think actually just having some positivity is such a counter voice to a world of quite a lot of negativity at the moment. I think the world is very divisive and I think there's a great opportunity for us to just, with a positive voice and a positive vision for the future and a positive vision for the region, actually corral people because I think people are more interested now in something that they can get behind rather than just another divisive debate that they can have. I'm 100% with you and that's why we pulled together British Chambers of Commerce Southwest because we're not in competition, we're all in the same part of the region, we've all got fantastic things to shout about we can share our problems but it's more about celebrating our successes and just before we round up so we've talked a lot about your job but i want to talk a bit about you because we need to know a bit about rich and we don't know a lot about rich so i heard that you're interested in rugby and looking at your facial features nothing seems to be broken so surely it must be watching it rather than playing it well bless you no it must be the lighting in this studio i had what was a bit of a mike tyndall nose did you yeah i was normally the smallest kid around so of course i wanted to just play the toughest game so yeah i played rugby from at the age of four i mean back then it wasn't tag rugby it was full contact rugby wind and rain driving in sideways from cornwall so not i always played rugby until i got to you know my mid-30s when many things started breaking and <laughs> <laughs> so i guess you learned to run very fast is that it uh, yeah <laughs> until you had to give up well one of the things about being the smallest kid in a big game is that you just sort of can duck under things quite a lot but yeah i'd love rugby and to this day i still love rugby both my boys played rugby and yeah i do i love it i just wish my team bath were doing slightly better than what they are at the moment. Why do you support Bath? Well, it was in the 80s. I grew up in Cornwall and there wasn't an extra Chiefs it is now. Uh, so if you wanted any sort of really good sort of quality sport in a rugby sense, Bath was the closest you had to it. So, oh, right. Yeah, but heck of a journey in the 80s, let me tell you. And you mentioned your boys. Are you okay to talk about your family? Who have you got around you? Oh, I've got two sons. I'm very proud. And my wife as well. Bless her. I mean, living with me, they deserve a medal, <laughs> especially my wife. Yeah, she 
describes me as hugely impatient, which I am, but I describe myself as a hurry-up person. <laughs> Keen to get things done. Yeah. My eldest son, he's a marine engineer. He's on the aircraft carrier, Queen Elizabeth. Wow. My youngest son has just got into the police, so he's starting a degree. So degree apprenticeships are yeah, sort of yeah. a brand new, very, very disruptive for a university degree apprenticeships. But yeah, we've got about a thousand of them in our place. He says, getting off his family. But yeah, so very, very proud of my sons. And yeah, I'm very thankful that they're doing ever so well as well. Good. And I suppose to, to bring it full circle, so I started off asking you whether you wrote Watership Down, because that was Richard Adams, not Rich Adams. But I hear you also write. So are you the next JK Rowling or what sort of thing do you write about? Well, I do. I mean, I think that's my retirement plan. I've got several ideas in my head. So yeah, people have different things. I don't know. Some people want a speedboat. Some people want a place in the south of France. I want to put on a play. All of the above. Yeah. Me. But I want to put on a play in the south of France on a speedboat. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So is it playwriting you do? Yeah, that's what I want to do. Yeah. So when I retire, that's what I'd like to do is just write wow. some plays. Yeah. You got ideas in your head, yeah, storylines, and yeah, yeah. you're not going to tell me here because well, somebody will steal it. They're that good. They're all whodunits, really. I guess a Christie genre. Yeah, it's always the butler. It's not the it. butler. Well, it might be the butler. Yeah. Do you know that was the biggest twist in movie history? Was the Sixth Sense? And I told a friend, oh, I'm going to see The Sixth Sense tonight. And the response was, <laughs> he's a ghost, you know. <laughs> well, thanks for that. I see it now. <laughs> utterly ruined the film for me. But no, I've always felt I've got a novel in me, but it's a lot harder than it looks. And I'm very aware of that. And it takes immense dedication and yeah. what have you. Yeah, I mean, I've had a couple of goes at it and work gets in the way a little bit, doesn't it? You need to have that potting shed at the bottom of the garden and just sit in that armchair and quietly have a think about it. Yeah, I think, funnily enough, you mentioned boats. I mean, my dream is to own a boat, which is a bit of a a pipe dream at the moment but I think that'll be the time I do it is sitting on my boat yeah. clearing your head and trying to write yeah. the next war and peace or whatever it is yeah, yeah I'm with you all the way I mean I've often spoken to people who've retired and they said oh don't retire don't retire and I said oh you know what as much as I love my job the thought of being able to learn how to cook really well and write and go and see a lot more theatre and I enjoy travel still yeah, yeah all those things yeah I'm with you all the way yeah. so people say oh, I couldn't retire I'd be bored and I think we've got no imagination or no money then I mean that's the only thing that prevents me retiring is I need the money because there's a million things I'd want to do. Yeah, me too. And they all need money. Yes. <laughs> Annoying that, isn't it? Well, what a wonderful way to wrap up the interview. Let's hope we talk again because I'm sure there's a million more stories. Thank you, Rich Adams. Brilliant. Lovely to talk to you. Been a pleasure. Thank you. If you're not already a Chamber member and you'd like to join, membership starts from as little as £245 per annum plus VAT. Your business can gain yearly benefits in excess of £2,200. Check out the membership section at devonchamber.co.uk. Be part of something bigger and join today to connect, grow and succeed with the Devon and Plymouth Chamber. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpott. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved. 